sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Your home for all the rumor in your window and all the stuff that people talk about with music. And it's been a long time since we've done an Inception episode. That's an episode that goes through the work of one artist to get to another artist. Like, you remember, it was like maybe a year ago on episode 97, we jumped through the song Carl Perkins' Cadillac by the Drive-By Truckers. Yeah. yeah. We talked about Carl Perkins, but we also got to talk about the Drive-By Truckers. Uh, Today, I want to do something similar, but instead of relying on the Southern Twinge tail-telling of the truckers, I want to slide backwards into the catalog of possibly the biggest musician alive on the planet today, Taylor Swift. Uh, do, Do you consider yourself a Swifty? No. No. Like, Not, do, no. do you enjoy it at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw a stadium show uh, before the pandemic, and it was it was remarkably good for a stadium show. I thought it was great. I have seen her twice. I have been in the pit both times, uh, and it was delightful. I got named a Swifty Dad by MTV in uh, 2015. Wait, uh, wait, I put, what, what is the, wait, wait. I, Just put, full, I put the link in the stop. show notes. Yeah, you don't remember this? <laughs> yeah, so you know, I was. We talked about some of this Taylor Swift stuff when we met, but no, I, this is I can't. So I saw this. her on the on the best tour, the nineteen eighty nine tour. I saw her on the Speak Now tour as well. But on the nineteen eighty nine tour, I had my then seven year old daughter with me, who now is a hardcore Swifty, and and she feels like she peaked a little early in her Swiftydom that she she got to meet you know because we had the radio connections. She got to meet Taylor and hug her. Well, the famous story is that I took her backstage. And we were going through the meet and greet, and she walked up and gave Taylor a big hug. And Taylor said, "Hey, uh, do you want your dad in on this picture too?" And Sadie looked straighter at straight at her in the eyes and said, "Nope." And she goes, "Oh, okay." So there is a picture of my daughter hugging the crap out of Taylor Swift, and I am not in the frame. But oh, while fantastic. while we were in the arena, this guy was writing for MTV, and he comes up and is like, "Oh, hey, I see you're with your daughter. Do you want to do my Swifty Dad quiz?" No and I was way. like, "Okay." So he like asked me like four questions, and of course, I knew them all because I worked in radio and I'm a music oh. head, and all of those things combined. Uh, and a, so you were a Swifty Dad. I was That's a Swifty how you Dad. Got chosen as a Swifty Dad. So God, how did I not know this? Yeah, what so the picture's not in the show. The picture's not in the article anymore, but the article is still Article's online, there. and I I put it in the show notes. So if you want right. to go see it and read it, you can see that I made my daughter a real nerd because she told the reporter about who produced her favorite song on the record. Because, you know, she's my kid. So cheers to that. Uh, but in short, yeah, I've always been a Taylor fan. I was into those country records, sort of, uh, when we were working them back in the day. And, I, you know, I, as I said, I've raised someone who really loves and respects her and is borderline obsessed. So there's a lot of Taylor in my life. For our purposes today, we're going to honor the Eras Tour approach that Taylor herself is now taking, and we're going to go way back. We're going to go before Midnight's. We're going to go before the Pandemic Records. We're going to go before Lover, before Reputation, even before My Beloved 1989, which I count unapologetically and unironically as one of the best albums ever made. Uh, Today, we're going to go back to 2012's Red. Now, if you don't know Taylor's catalog or career, let me just give you some rough context that I think is important to this story. This is where all these very different important characters get involved with this story. It's like a big turning point. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- this is a little bit of a sliding doors moment. I have to squint to remember this, but working in country music when this record came out, there were thoughts that she might be committing career suicide. Like that this might be marking the beginning of the end for her. Of course, it didn't. We now see in retrospect that this was a great move for her, but she was actively turning away from the country market that had raised her. And she'd done the first three records with this guy, Nathan Chapman. And oh my God, I have a Nathan Chapman story that you're not going to believe. All right. So I, I hung out with Nathan Chapman. We were kids together. This was, this was a thing that happened. And I don't think I've ever told you this. No, no, no. You so, never told me this. So Nathan is the son of Steve and Annie Chapman. And Steve and Annie Chapman were evangelical Christian singers who went around to churches and performed for like a love offering. we've made the Lord the last thing on our minds. But there's still time for a circle of two. And they would often take their kids with them, Nathan and Heidi. And my parents would host them, and we would all go to dinner after the show with Nathan and Heidi Chapman. And, when, and my dad called me one day like 10 years ago and was like, you remember Nathan Chapman? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I'm pretty sure he's producing all of Taylor Swift's records. And I was like, no way. And I went and looked it up. And sure enough, man, Nathan Chapman. So Nathan Chapman, Brian, we used to, we used to hang out, which is a totally weird thing. Anyway, I just thought that was a wow. fun thing I had to throw in here because I don't think I've ever told you that. Wow. You should have made a record with Nathan Chapman. Apparently. Uh, so You should have. Or maybe Max Martin. Well, and that's what happens, right? So this is the record where right. Nathan Chapman's still in the room, but she calls Scott Borchetta and is like, this guy, Max Martin, do you think you can get him to to come and work with me? And so they do it. We mentioned this when we were talking about Shania a few weeks ago, that there's a, there's a major debt to be paid to Shania in the way that Taylor chooses to operate. Absolutely. From here forward and trying to be herself. So I know this, I'm not a Swifty, but I know enough about that Speak Now was the record where it showed like here she can write songs. Right, right. The Red Album had different things on it. Like it was a different Different departure. It was a departure record. Well, and you already Mm -hmm. said like, so Max Martin's in the room with Shellback, his, his partner, and they produced 22 I Knew You Were Trouble and We're Never Getting Back Together, which are big pop songs and it's like huge again you have to remember coming from country radio what it was like to hear these songs and be like we can't play these on country radio like i remember those conversations happening in the hallways she also starts working with other producers and writers dan wilson isn't in the room from semi-sonic who i love i think he's an excellent songwriter a butch walker who has shaped a lot of pop well really 10 years ago or so was shaping a lot of pop music and he was in in a group 20 years ago called the marvelous three which, if you've yeah. not heard those power pop records, do yourself a favor. And and, and Butch and Butch Walker's solo records are really good too. By the so way, so good, Just dude. Heads so up. Good. It's like it's really when you hear the Butch Walker records, you'll be like, okay, wait. So this dude was hanging out <laughs> with Max Martin. 
yeah daylight smith yeah in a room i mean and that's the thing they were gonna make great records you see this now even more but she's a unifier right i mean at this point in her career she's gotten so big that anyone and everyone is interested in working with her and so she's brought all these people along but you know this record had jackknife lee working with her because he's he's from snow patrol and the lead yeah. singer does a duet, yeah. but then he actually helps produce that that record. Uh, Jeff Basker, who she hears, and he comes into the song we're going to talk about. He, he's an important part of it because she hears uh, We Are Young by Fun. And you know how that song is all built around the drums? She's like, I want that drum sound. So she calls the guy who made that drum sound, Jeff Basker, and he gets to work on the record. So... I set all of this up here because it's at this big juncture in her career when she's navigating towards this big risky move that she quietly writes and records a song that becomes track 13. That record was so long. Track 13 on Red, a song called The Lucky One. Are, are you familiar at all with this? It's the one where the drums go ding 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 yeah. ding ding yeah. It's, it's it's that the, song. Whatever it's the Jeff it, Basker drums. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so she she's credited as the sole writer on this, and, and this song is a story song, and it tells a story about a woman who becomes very successful as an entertainer and then gets mm-hmm. disillusioned. So I I'll read a few lyrics here. Uh, now it's big black cars and Riviera views and your lover in the foyer doesn't even know you and your secrets end up splashed on the news front page and they tell you that you're lucky, but you're so confused because you don't feel pretty, you just feel used. Now, that's a pretty common story and a very common pop song theme, right? Being disillusioned with fame. Right. What sets the lucky one apart is how the song ends. So the woman at the center of the story chooses to walk away from her success at the height of her powers and end everything on her own terms. It was a few- First, I think you can see this as Taylor reflecting on where she is at this point in her career, right? I mean, yeah, she's young. How old is she? Yeah, how old is she? 22, 23 23, at this point? Yeah. Yeah. She's born in 89. That's the easy thing to remember. And this is 2012. But she's already found huge success. And I think she knows she's taking a risk. And that this could like launch her to be bigger than she could ever imagine over the next decade. She could be doing three nights in every major metropolitan area in their biggest stadium. Or it could result in this crash and burn scenario where she's done. And I will say this for our listeners that have no familiarity with what it's like to be in country radio. I remember around this time, the vitriol around her with her popularity was nasty. And so she takes more control of her songwriting and she takes more control of the artistic direction with beckoning Max Martin to her through Scott Borchetta. And this is a big gamble and it could go very, very wrong. What's captivating to a certain ear or level of fan uh, is who she might be referring to in this last verse. It was a few years later and I showed up here. It sounds like she's talking about herself now. And they still tell the legend of how you disappeared, how you took the money and your dignity and you got the hell out. So it begs this question. Is this song based on a true story? And that's the rock and roll wormhole that I want to dive into today. 
Ooh, how super fun. So here's the thing about Taylor living with a hardcore Swifty who was a teenager. If you lived with someone who was who was into this whole thing about Midnight's coming out, I mean, my daughter was telling me the Instagram rumors every single day about what the track titles meant and what order they were going to be in and what that meant and who the songs were about. And there's just all of this significance to everything. There'd be She'd put up a picture on Instagram and people would be dropping all these fan theories on what it meant because of the way she was holding the camera or the color of the tint that was on the picture, right? So she's always been great at this sort of mystique spinning. And, and no, she's... She's never said directly who she's referring to. I, I think partly for the mystique, but I also can speculate. Right. I think there's another layer of this, and this might be giving her a ton of credit. But I, I do think that she's always been smart and thoughtful, and I think she might say that the point of this is that it happens to a lot of women. It's it's not just an anecdotal story, but this is actually a pattern that happens in entertainment of of this sort of what you already alluded to of what was happening to her in country music, right? Of just this vitriol that was being thrown at her and this disrespect as a woman in entertainment. Let's get into the rumor and innuendo. So who's this song about, dude? So I'll tell you the the popular and accepted theories. If you were to just get on the internet right now and and do your own research very quickly, you're going to come up with two names, Joni Mitchell and Kim Wilde. Let's start with Jody. I feel like you can you can get us where we need to go with Jody. Can you give us a primer? I have a divided household here, man, where someone does not like Joni Mitchell. But listen, really? going going to California is Paige and Plant had a uh, like everyone else had a crush on her, and that's the song. They no, uh, you're telling me going to California by Led Zeppelin is is about going to California to see Joni Mitchell? Do you know? Uh, how many songs have been written about Joni Mitchell? <laughs> Do you know how many times Joni Mitchell played that song, breaking up about David Crosby, right in front of uh, David Crosby twice? Oh, yeah. Forgot it's about a- that. We talked about that on the David Crosby episode. Holy crap. If, if Joni Mitchell had a wallet, it would say bad motherfucker on it. <laughs> nope. But going to California, it's the tunings D A D g b d so it's the it's the dad it's d-a-d that sort of illustrates the thing like she was she was doing alternate tunings that was one of her trademarks was tuning her guitar do you know anything about the special guitar she had made um it was like a a roland vga i think that was like the virtual overlay they put on this like she hires a guy like way before this sort of tech was just built in on the internet or that you could just like go to the, you know, buy a thing on Amazon. She hired a guy like in the mid nineties to make her this Stratocaster style guitar that had this, like it had software in it. Right. And it it would allow it to change without her actually changing the tuning. She was a badass like on every level. So in episode 114, we talked about Rick James. Joni was in that story. Oh, that's yeah, 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 great, yeah. Because that's she a great was, episode if you haven't heard. That's 114. He goes to her house to meet Neil Young because Neil Young's just like staying at Joni Mitchell's house. The influence in connecting people is really interesting. And think about how she was at the center of CSN and why. And, and, and there are some things where she just was always in the middle of that. But she was a Canadian and she was in a Canadian nightclubs and she was a, a songwriter initially that was kind of the deal but she wanted she got a record deal out of it you know to be a performer and then there's this wild career that starts of just absolute legendary recordings alongside all kinds of experimenting like I forget how much she just threw the book out and did whatever she wanted through certain parts of her career 
Yeah, I completely forgot. Why do we talk about the jazz part first? We should just <laughs> talk about the fucking jazz. So I mean, she did an way- album with, like, not to step on you. She did an album with Charles Mingus. Like, with Charles motherfucking Mingus, <laughs> my favorite. Which and the I think I own kid. that record somewhere. To love's changing faces. those two genres together like it's she stands alone in first yeah and so here's here's how this connects to the taylor song the the question becomes is she who is being referred to as someone who took the money and walked away from her fame and i would say only kind of so in, in 1988 she records this album called taming the tiger and in the early 2000s she'll rec- fulfill the rest of her recording contract by making albums that don't have new songs. She tells the press that one of these, an album called Travelogue, was going to be her final album. And there's a 2002 Rolling Stone interview where she complains about the music industry and she calls it a cesspool, right? So this is sort of this attitude of like, I'm I'm packing up and leaving. She hints at, at one point, I think in that interview, that she might just start putting things out on the internet. That was a popular thing to drop in interviews around the year 2000. Uh, but none of this actually lasts very long. So she makes sort of a big deal, and then by 2007, she's got new material out. And through activism and weird quotes about Dylan being a thief, she sort of stays in the limelight. I'm just brushing over that, but we can talk about it if you want. Uh, And I I don't really think it lines up with what the lucky one is portraying. Uh, Also, in the last few years, I don't know if you knew this, Brandi Carlisle has like made it a personal mm-hmm. project of her own to hang out with Joni Mitchell and get her to like come out into public. And yeah. I think like in the next couple of weeks, they're doing a Joni Mitchell headlining event somewhere on the West Coast. Yeah, she did the uh, folk festival or the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Festival. She just showed up they, like in Brandy Carlisle's were, slot, I think. They recorded it too. Which is wild. Uh, but... I definitely think that Joni was an inspiration to Taylor. So it makes sense, right? So the album's called Red, and it's because of Blue, right? Yeah, and the album the album art is kind of similar. They're both sort of, it's a headshot ah, at an angle sort of thing. It. Yeah. So I definitely think that she gets pulled into this conversation because of that. And there's no denying that a young, innovative woman with an acoustic guitar owes some homage to the great Joni Mitchell. But I don't. I don't think the lucky one is really about Joni Mitchell. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Limp Bizkit. Rolling, 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 
Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheated Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. What's your relationship to Kim Wilde? You know, by now, Brian, I think I've heard more bands play Kids in America than Kim Wilde, which is pretty, <laughs> right? You know, the thing that's lost on Americans uh, is that Kim Wilde was bonkers huge in the UK. She holds the record for being the most charted British female solo actor of the 1980s. <laughs> With how many, how many hits? 17. She had 17 top 40 UK hits. What? That's yeah. like Tina Turner U.S. Dude, I know. And like, no one knows that. People think she's the kids yeah. in America girl. Right. Yeah. See, did you hear me? I made fun of her. I was thinking about like bowling for soup playing it or no, something. No, I know. It's wild. It, but, it's, so, but she's she's like rock and roll offspring because it's, um, ah, were their names? They were in a band called the Vernon Girls. Yeah, Joyce Baker. You got it. And then Marty Wilde was her oh, dad. okay. And, and it, Marty it. Marty Wilde was like a 1950s rock and roll dude. Uh, Kim herself will get signed at a pretty young age uh, by a name that keeps coming up on this show when we talk British musicians, and that is Mickey Most. I just like you like for all of us to say Mickey Most as much as we can, just for a <laughs> we moment. We do. Are everyone ready? I feel like Mickey, Mickey Most. Most. I feel like that name has come up on this show every week for like at least a it's month just, or two. Fun to say. Okay, uh, so go ahead. She cashes in on her connections too, right? So her dad and uncle will write all of her early 80s material. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> and the success happens like really fast. Her very first single is Kids in America. Did American audiences know that that was written by someone who was not American? <laughs> right? Like, isn't that weird that it's Kids in America? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't think if you had asked me a week ago, if Kim Wilde was British, I would have said no. I would have said she was American, based only on that song. That is like her signature song here. That song was not like a top 20 hit in the, the U.S., but I bet that was like a top five hit in the U.K. or whatever. Yeah, like it, was it was like, a- I, I like if I hold on, I think I have it. It's It was number two in the U.K. singles chart, and then it was like top five in Germany, France, and Australia. See, so in, in the U.S., she's she's only known for that one song, really. So I don't think the lucky one is about Kim Wilde at all because Kim never really quits music. She right? actually she actually does the opposite. In the early 2000s, she starts doing nostalgia tours. Like there, so what, I didn't even know about this, but there was like a British nostalgia tour that runs in the early 2000s, and, and I guess it was like a thing that was just in Britain, and she's on it like the whole time, every year. Why do you think her name gets associated with Joni? Okay, so with I, this, I wondered about that because it seems, I mean, Joni Mitchell and Kim Wilde, I couldn't even draw a connection to those two if I was forced to. I don't know. You know, it's not like those two have something in common drawing them to this song. So how does she connect with Taylor and how does she connect with the song itself? Two reasons, I think. One is that the melody of the song, the lucky one, actually openly borrows from a Kim Wilde song that I wasn't familiar with, but it's a song called Four Letter Word.
And Taylor fans love these sorts of Easter eggs. You can hear it. You can sort of hear it there. And this is the sort of thing where it's like, oh, you know, it borrows from that song, so this is a reference to Kim Wilde. But the second one, the second reason that I think people associate this with her, and, and, and this will come up when you do an internet search on it, is because of this particular line. They say you bought a bunch of land somewhere, chose the Rose Garden over Madison Square. Oh, so Kim Wilde like was did TV, right? Yes, about, she gar- did. About gardening. She about did gardening. gardening TV. Boom, you got us there. What, yeah. What, like, what, what kind of sleuthing is this? So I, this, I can't believe you just randomly remember stuff like that. So this is what happens. She gets pregnant. Something, there was something weird yeah. that happened. I mean, it is the whole thing's a little strange. She gets pregnant for the first time, and I guess she has some time to think about things besides the entertainment industry as she takes a break, and she gets really into gardening. Which I, it seems more believable and understandable to me post pandemic because I like I briefly got more into gardening. You I know got more into gardening during the pandemic. I, uh, I'm a gardener, man. Yeah. And uh, she even goes to she does something I don't think you've done, which is she goes to horticultural college. And this gets her a show on British television. The BBC right. gives her a show about gardening, she, and she writes two books about gardening. Well, I didn't know that, so I knew she was a TV personality. Yeah, which was weird. But, but yeah. she never stops doing music. And, and this has been a weird thing the media has tried to portray over the years. I think because it's like fits in a box to be like, well, Kim White, she used to she used to rock the kids in America, but now she's rocking the roses or what you know. I mean, it's it just right. it's a fun story, but it's not actually true. It's also like now we're in 2023 and everybody works on seven different passion projects. You know what I mean? So it's like not weird for someone to be a gardener and a musician and a TV host. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but here's the thing that is weird. If you just want to jump down this with me for a moment, right? What's the? There's something that's weird about it, the, the weird thing is that she started spouting all these things about finding aliens in her garden. Oh yeah, that's right. She thought there was aliens <laughs> visiting her. In the garden. It's yeah, it's, it's in the show notes. There's a there's an interview where she just is like. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, what's the art? About the so publication awesome. is a Great British Life. They they she's going to do a show and a town or something and so they get they get a phoner with her and she starts talking about how yeah my garden's really great also i've seen aliens back there and <laughs> i definitely think that's real so that's fun i'm not here to judge i'm just here to report that is something that happened oh okay well look i don't think it's either one so if the internet says that it's it's between those two i don't think it is so who do you think it's about so like i'm glad you asked I think it's about Bobby Gentry. Oh, shit. Of course. It's it's totally about Bobby Gentry. It's totally about Roberta Lee Streeter. That's it, who it, it is, dude. It makes sense, right? Mama said it was a shame about Billy Joe anyhow. Seems like nothing ever comes to no good up on Choctaw Ridge. Now Billy Joe McAllister's jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge Brother said he recollected when he and Tom and Billy Joe Okay, fuck I, yeah it is Listen Oh my god, oh my gosh You guys I, get- I, I had a poster Dude, I had a Bobby Gentry poster <laughs> I had a Samantha Fox poster and a Bobby Gentry poster just, in my room. Listen, I had put this at the bottom of the show notes to make sure we mentioned it. Oh, I'm going to mention it so now, bizarre. which is if you have not seen the Ed Sullivan show performance of Bobby Gentry. So I was watching something else during the yeah, research and the, the Ed Sullivan show popped up and I 
like jaw drop. A little bit south of Montgomery Mama worked in the big house And daddy he worked for the county I never had no learning Until I turned 16 When Joe hit me Come up the river Y'all Lord made a woman out of me Yes he did Lord he made a woman out of me Yeah Like and I can't even explain it Until you <laughs> see it First of all Full halter top, 1970 yeah. primetime television. Yeah. She's go- It's not just that she's gorgeous. It is that she is captivating. Yes. Captivating. Yes. So yes. so do do the history, man. Tell us all about Roberta Lee Streeter. R- Roberta is from Mississippi, and she was raised by her grandparents, and they had no electricity or, or plumbing. Yeah, right, right, right. Remember, we talked about Shania, and we were talking about how important destitute backgrounds are when you're a country music star? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and so she has it, like, whether any of this stuff really is true, but she she has lore. So there's a the thing. It's like Jerry Lee Lewis and the piano or whatever. So it's like her grandmother traded one of the cows for a neighbor's <laughs> piano. I believe and it. Then, I want to believe she, it. And she had a song, and the song that she wrote when she was a little girl was called My Dog Sergeant is a Good Dog, which is a fucking great name of a song Dude, for a kid to write on the so piano. check this shit out. It is My in the, Dog it is, Sergeant is a Good Dog. That's Bobby Gentry. It's in the show notes. So I got Dude, Taylor curious. Swift wrote a song about Bobby Gentry. <laughs> this is so true, isn't it? So I, it I, has to be true. I wanted to see if my dog Sergeant is a good dog was ever put to record. Sergeant, 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 my dog Sergeant is a good dog. Sergeant, 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 my dog Sergeant is a good dog. Sergeant, 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 my dog Sergeant is a good. So, okay, so she leaves Mississippi. So it's one of those things where they know she's talented. So she goes to California with her mom and they have a group together called Ruby and Bobby Myers. And then she sees a movie and and the last name is Gentry and she decides to make Gentry her her last name. And then she goes to UCLA, right? Like not for music. It's for something else. She goes for philosophy. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I, I it, it's common story as I remember it, where she takes some singing gigs while she's in school, and she yeah, ends she up in, in this, Vegas. She was in Vegas. Yeah, she ends up going to Vegas and running into somebody backstage. Who who she Bob see Hope. back? Bob Hope. Oh my God! Can you imagine? And yeah, think about the time period. Like, yeah, who's supposed to be the person that you run into? I don't know. It's got to be pretty unbelievable for a person who no one knows out of nowhere to show up and all of a sudden Bob Hope <laughs> sees yeah. you in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. So th- th- then she she does music school after that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was the LA Conservatory of Music and she um there's a guy there his name is Jody Reynolds and he went to see uh, a concert at a club and so she wanted to see hey if she could just come sit in on a recording session and that's really how she gets on recording on tape like she just was bold enough to to do that and she ended up doing a couple of duets with with him okay so we um, could get really distracted talking about jody reynolds i realize that we are here to talk about bobby gentry right now but yeah. this dude has 
a cool serendipitous route. He's a rockabilly guy who is inspired by Bob Wills and Eddie Arnold, right? But he he hears Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel like before a gig. And he he's he goes out to his car and he writes a song called Endless Sleep, like in response to Heartbreak Hotel. <laughs> and and this song becomes his song. So we look it up, Endless Sleep by by Jody Reynolds. Uh and then in the mid 70s so he's inspired by Elvis writes his song it becomes the thing that launches his career and in the mid 70s Colonel Tom Parker signs him to a deal to write songs for Elvis but Elvis right. dies before he gets to perform any of them and since right. then like you don't think you know Jody Reynolds songs but they've been covered by like the MC5 and Billy Idol and like all sorts of random people yeah so it's bizarre that that's who Bobby Gentry runs into. It's super start. weird. That's super sure. weird pairing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so then she she really wanted to write songs, and so she immediately wrote the Ode to Billy Joe. Like um, almost immediately, she thinks it's a pretty good song. She wanted to sell the song, so she needed to have a demo. So she couldn't figure out the best way to do it. So she just recorded it herself, thinking it was the cheapest way to do it, and it was uh, Capital who who heard it. Okay. Yeah, Capital is like, holy shit. And, and, and this is the thing. If, if you have not listened to a lot of Bobby Gentry, there is something about that voice. And so Capitol hears it, and they're just like, well, you can just have a recording contract. <laughs> and so they connect her with a guy that they just brought over from Mercury Records to work on their projects, and his name is Kelly Gordon. And this starts a partnership that's first professional and then romantic for a little while that will yeah. actually last the rest of his life. Uh, and yeah, it will, dies. It'll, yeah, yeah, and it'll launch her career. Right, right. And so that was going to be a B-side. Another case of the this is this is another thing that keeps coming up like Mickey most uh, people thinking the B side is the B side and it's actually the A side definitely the right move it does so well they decide to just take all her demos and make a full record and Capital pre orders five hundred thousand copies of this record which at the time is like right. the largest pressing of a debut album ever in their in the- and think about what's on the charts and what's about to happen. She replaces Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band at the top of the Billboard 200. That's right. Well, and she'll she, win Grammys. She'll, I mean, this, this is just the start of her, right? Yeah, which, you know, they do say is a curse. Uh, best female pop vocal performance. And then she just has this career that happens really fast. Again, I love to point out the timeline in these crazy 60s, 70s, and 80s careers. She duets with Jody at the end of 66, record deal June of 67. Second album comes out in like February of 68. It's, I mean, it's all at a breakneck speed. Right. And so Kelly, her partner, you know, professional and personal, gets the production credit for this. But yeah, so she played all the instruments the entire thing. And then she's ascending so quickly, she lands a TV variety show. No gardening, though. Uh, This one is just your basic variety show on the BBC. Yeah. And she's the first female songwriter to host a series on the network ever. She'll get six half-hour episodes. They'll air from July 13th to August 17th. She puts out two more albums in 68. So I don't know if you're keeping track at home. That's three total albums in 1968. And guess who the third one is with? It's she does a duets record with Glenn Frickin Campbell. Oh my god! And they're fucking awesome together. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we get fancy. That's that's like nineteen. Dude, I fucking love that song. Is that an excuse for me to play the hardcore version of Fancy? Like I have this metal band from South Carolina who does a. Yeah, I'll play it later. 
I, uh, I was going to say, so do good. you have to ask me for permission to, can I play the hardcore version of <laughs> yes, you can do that anytime you want to. Uh, but then she, she puts out a, uh, a record in 71 and then she quits. She stops making music, new music, but she does this Vegas show and they did seven different versions of it in the seventies. And you know, to go full circle, a few years ago, she knocked Sgt. Pepper's off the Billboard charts. She does a 30-minute Sgt. Pepper segment, quote, that ended with Bobby in a star-decorated trapeze flying above the stage for Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Yeah, um, it's just totally weird. So, But there's an Ode to Billy Joe movie, which I have seen. How is uh, it? It's uh, it gets an F for film. It's directed. <laughs> it's directed by the guy that played Jethro in the Beverly Hillbillies. Max. Oh yeah. So, yeah, I was gonna say so, Max. I mean, it's it's fine, man. You know, like I don't know. I remember like like I have fond memories of watching it now at this point. So, so. that that's like seventy eight or something, right? And so then we get to the end of the seventies, beginning of the eighties, and this is where we get to the drama. Things are fairly good, or at least by appearances. May tenth, nineteen eighty one. She gets to be a celebrity guest on this all-star salute to Mother's Day. Uh, April of 82, she will attend the Academy of Country Music Awards, and then she essentially disappears. Vanishes. That's, and it's, she's the lucky one. That's the Taylor Swift song. It's got to be her, right? It's got to be her. So, Oh, it's so awesome. It, it, she has not recorded, performed, or been interviewed since... April of 1982, 11 months before your humble host here was born. Uh, let me read the line again. They still tell the legend of how you disappeared, how you took the money and your dignity and got the hell out. And I think that's interesting. The dignity thing, right? She didn't fade right. away. She didn't make a bunch of compromises. She had a singular insane career. If you think about TV, Vegas show duets seven albums in the course of three years there it's wild uh but there's some stuff going on in the background too right so she has her first kid in 81 and then remember we talked about this guy Kelly Gordon yeah he dies he dies right, right around that time and I read that she invites him they're not romantic they they're only romantic for the first few years of her career, as I understand it. And then she's actually married twice after that relationship. But she has him come and live with her. And he right. she like nurses him uh, yeah. up until his death. He dies at the age of 48. Um, and there's this great piece in 2008 in The Guardian written by this guy, Bob Stanley. And he puts it this way. Quote, quite possibly by 1981, Gentry thought there were other things to do with the rest of her life that would be more satisfying than constantly thinking up new costumes, new routines, and new ways of avoiding besotted fans she left on her own terms uh but there's also this like bigger picture to consider he quotes uh, a dj at wfmu a, a woman named sheila b as, wfmu kicks ass <laughs> I, I threw that when i saw the quote i was like well that's going in because murdoch's gonna love it uh quote obviously there are many factors behind success but in 1967 america was clearly not ready to roll out the red carpet for the female artist who wrote played and produced her own material. I I think she's got a point. Well, I mean, think about when it was. Yeah. Pre-70. Yeah. And, you know, they, it, Bob, this guy, Bob, who wrote this article in The Guardian, goes on to make another point. 
getting a little more into her biography and says, quote, at almost every turn in her story, there's a man who feels slighted. There's Bobby Paris, accredited producer on Ode to Billy Joe, who kept photos of Gentry with her face scratched out. I oh, my, oh, my gosh. There's Jim Ford, who was an ex-boyfriend who claimed he wrote Ode to Billy Joe, and his supposed evidence was that she never wrote another song that was as big a hit, but neither did he. Uh, she could write, produce, design sets, costumes. She could pretty much do everything, and she liked to work alone. And I think that's the key sentence. She could do it on her own. And at a certain point, defending yourself for not needing the help <laughs> would get exhausting. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, I mean, I don't know how much more of a better case we can make of her being way ahead of her time, right? Well, it, 60s, 70s entertainment biz definitely did not know how to conceptualize or understand a woman as strong, sexy, opinionated, talented, and in charge as she is. It, it, this is a quote from a 1974 interview. So this is what is that seven years before the disappearance eight years quote yeah. i am a woman working for herself in a man's field notice that phrase again working for herself i am a successful woman and record producer i took ode to billy joe to capital i sold it and produced the album myself even though kelly is gets all gets credit if you go look today uh, it wasn't easy. It's difficult when a woman is attractive. Beauty is supposed to negate intelligence, which is ridiculous. Certainly, there are no women executives and producers to speak of in the record business. She's calling people out in 1974. And so then she calls the ultimate shot in 1982, and she just quits with no warning. So I knew it was her because she, she split, but where'd she go? Because I don't know where she went. So literally... No one uh, in the wider, like, non-personally related to her or, like, super close friend sense, no one knew for a really long time. For for over 30 years, she, had, she was just basically, like, I think there was a contingent of people that had thought maybe she had died or something had happened to her. But in 2016, there's a Washington Post reporter named Neely Tucker who takes a stab at trying to figure out what might have happened to Bobby. And this is what she comes back with. Quote, the short answer to one of Pop's great mysteries, Bobby Gentry lives about a two-hour drive from the site of the Tallahatchie Bridge that made her so famous. She lives in a gated community in a very nice house that costs about $1.5 million. Her neighbors, a few locals, and some real estate agents know who she is although it's not clear which of her many possible names she might go by. <laughs> so this piece goes on to ask how you disappear from the limelight, which is which is actually a pretty good question, though I think the first thing I would say is like it would be very different now um, with all of the different digital and other footprints that you leave, right? Um this is the early 80s. But the article says this, quote, a complicated family history, a stage name, a couple of short-lived marriages, and a false birth date on her official PR material helped. Plus, Gentry's family didn't talk, and she had cut off nearly all her friends in the music business. When reporters would reach out through intermediaries, there was just never a reply. She just straight up said, no, I'm done. 
And it's funny, if you want to go read that article, the Washington Post, it's actually pretty short because what happens is the reporter starts looking at like Google Maps, I guess, and like figures out because he's he like or she hears these rumors of like where they think Bobby Gentry is and she, and she can find a shot out. of the house. Yeah, she figures and, it out. And then she's able to cross-reference the address with a phone number and finds a phone number. And so she calls the phone number. And a woman picks up very politely and she introduces herself and says the newspaper's name and the woman hangs up. And so she ends saying after, you know, 30 something years, I'm pretty sure I made contact with Bobby Gentry, but I think that's it. Wow. Um, did you ever listen to the Mercury Rev record? Uh, it, they had, it was called the Bobby Gentry, the Delta's sweetie revisited. It was like the reimagining oh. of Bobby Gentry's Is forgotten it good? masterpiece. It's, it's okay. I like other Mercury Rev stuff better. But it's it's kind of cool. I mean, but, there's all sorts of influence, right? And all sorts of like speculation from other musicians about about what? Yeah, Joseph Buell had that song. What was that? The other, Bobby. Where is it, Bobby, where's Bobby Gentry? Gentry? Uh, Beth Orton recorded a song that was on the other side of Daybreak um, called I think it's just called Bobby Gentry. Bobby Gentry. And you know, in 2012, a country star on the verge of becoming one of the biggest names in pop music history stands on a metaphorical precipice on the back end of an album modeled after Joni Mitchell and Kim Wilde and she pays tribute to the legend of how you disappeared and how you took the money and your dignity and you got the hell out I think I am a Swifty at this point <laughs> just being oh, just man. being connected to Bobby Gentry is good enough for she's me she's the lucky one she's the lucky one hey if you've got a rumor if you've heard some innuendo if you need a research team this is what we do man we don't even charge for it send us a note it's we are the story guys at gmail.com and remember that we have your shot uh, at going to a kick-ass music festival life. dude what like tell me three bands that you want to see at louder than life off the top of your head well, let's see. Pantera, Pantera, Pantera. Uh, <laughs> uh, who do you want to see? Uh, so I'm know. gonna make sure that you and I together get to watch Fever 333. Okay, um, I've, I've never seen Fever 333, but uh, their frontman Jason was in a band called Let Live, who I did see and was absolutely blown away. And I have heard that Fever 333 is next level, like even better than than Let Live. Uh, also, I mean, we got to see Turnstile, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm glad they're on a big stage. Like, yeah. good for them too. It's gonna be a good time. Check out that full lineup and tell us the five bands you want to see. Um, you can find the link in a link tree on our Instagram. You can find it when you go to We Are the Story Guys dot uh, com. You, you'll find a link there to the side um, to to play the contest. Just all you gotta do is go fill out the information, put the five acts you want to see, and we might all be at the music festival together. Wouldn't that be magical? Uh, you can make some rock and roll bedtime stories of your own. Some rumor, some innuendo. Yeah, you can ha- you can make yeah. it happen right here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, meanwhile, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories if you want to support the show. Instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories if uh, you want to get involved on the social. And what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Here's the one chance, 